Welcome back to another episode of the Accord Research Alliance podcast. I'm Nathan Maloney, your host for today, and I get to talk with Lincoln Lau, who is the Director of Research for International Care Ministries based in the Philippines. And I think it comes from a place that really believes that if we are doing something for these poor communities, we want to be 100% confident that it is doing good. And if it's not doing good, we want to do something that is impactful and effective and helpful. I'm really excited about this conversation with Lincoln. He's someone I view as an innovator in this space of measuring what matters in Christ-centered relief and development. And for those who were with us back in October in Ridgecrest, North Carolina at the Accord Research Alliance Intensive, you got to hear Lincoln present. And he had a a keynote and then also a, a breakout session where he was talking about a randomized controlled trial that they're working on in partnership with Yale. And uh, it's very innovative, very uh, thought-provoking. And so we don't go into a lot of that here, but what we do is we explore a couple other areas um, that he mentioned in that presentation that he didn't get a lot of time to unpack. And so I thought uh, we'd invite him to this podcast and allow him uh, to kind of go into that a little bit deeper in those areas. But before we get to it, I just want to mention two things. One, um, speaking of the intensive, it's not too early to start planning for next year. Uh, So I think we'll be back at Ridgecrest in October, and we'll have another day-long meeting as a research alliance uh, where we get to sit in a room and hear from others, talk with others uh, who are doing similar work to us and many of the people that you'll hear on this podcast. So if you're making your budgets now for next year, we're making your plans. Uh, go ahead and put that into your plan for next year. It's well worth it. And then second, um, we want to hear your feedback on this podcast. So send us an email. It's ara at accordnetwork.org. Give us your thoughts. How can we make it better? Uh, who do you want to hear on the podcast? Uh, we would just love to hear from you. So with that, we'll jump right in. So Lincoln, can you tell me a little bit about your journey overall? How did you, what made you interested uh, in this line of work and in doing research? Sure. So my parents are missionaries and I grew up in a a home that was church planting up in northern Japan. And uh, the whole time, I guess, in my whole journey, I was always interested in trying to help. Uh, I was exposed to kind of different forms of poverty after spending a bit of time in rural China as well as rural Bangladesh. And I always thought that I would end up doing something very hands-on, very interpersonal. Um, But my parents never let me out of the academic track. So I was in many ways not forced, but very firmly nudged in the direction to continue on with my studies by my parents who um, are missionaries working out in the field. And um, I realize now that there was a lot of wisdom in that because they they saw how um, in the field of research, maybe there was something that I could contribute if I had the skills. And um, I think that is the, the journey that I ended up taking because I, it was through studying that I realized 
there's so many methods and tools that we have in the world of research that has impact to ministries. So I would say that I am a reluctant researcher in the beginning of the uh, beginning of my journey, and then I ended up uh, I ended up here where I, I love what I do. I like that a reluctant researcher. Um, so now tell us a little bit more about the organization you are currently with. So I'm at a ministry called International Care Ministries, or ICM, and we work in the Philippines. Uh, all of our operations and our programs are running only in the Philippines at this moment. Uh, I came across them when I was doing my graduate school. So I was in a PhD program in infectious disease epidemiology. I had no idea what it was before I started it. And as I started studying in this field of public health, I thought that I would be working with people a lot. But instead, I found myself in front of a computer learning how to code in statistics. So I was coding in R, and I was looking at spreadsheets. I was learning how to do summary stats and regressions and all of that. Um, a little bit confused about why I was doing that and why I was led in that path. Uh, and the way that I ended up with ICM was while I was two or three years into that uh, PhD program, I met up with a friend and she was just, I think she was just venting about her job. And she sat down and told me that she had mountains and mountains of data. She had no idea how to process it. I don't think she was actually asking me for help. She was just, this is a general difficulty she was dealing with in life. And I sat in front of her and I just said, hey, you know what? That's what I do every day. And if it's for... If it's for a, an NGO, I would love to help. And that's how I ended up getting connected to, to ICM. I met our CEO, I think, a day or two later after that conversation because my friend works worked for ICM at that point. And then uh, four days later, I was in the Philippines. And I've been going to the Philippines at least once a month ever since that conversation six years ago. Nice. That's a, that's a cool story of, of how you got connected there. Uh, now, can you tell us about your role today at ICM? So, my official title is that I'm, I'm the director of research here, but I spend a lot of time looking at partnerships and collaborations and uh, hosting practicums and interns from different universities. So, I know ICM is an organization that does great work in the Philippines. It's well-respected there. I've gotten to see that firsthand a bit through some previous work that I've done in the Philippines, but it's also starting to get a name and be recognized outside of the country now due to your partnership with Dean Carlin, a researcher at Yale and uh, Innovations for Poverty Action. That, And I think most of us are familiar with his work, or uh, we should be if we're not, but you've essentially partnered to do an RCT looking at the effectiveness of your program overall and looking at uh, the role of faith in the work that we do and, and its effectiveness. And so it's a very uh, provocative study, a very interesting study. And I know the results of that are being finalized and I think it's under review uh, for journal publication. So we won't go into much more detail on that and especially because you unpack that a bit at the Accord Research Alliance Intensive this past October. But what I did want to drilled down on a little bit is this idea that you brought up of how your approach to program evaluation has actually changed a bit 
since this RCT has been done with Yale. So maybe unpack that a little bit more. Um, now that you have staff and partners that really understand the mechanics of how an RCT works and, and how you can look at the results and the evidence as a result of that, how has that impacted your approach overall for your ongoing program evaluation? Right. Yeah, so it, it has been a great learning process working with, uh, with researchers like Dean Carlin and with just the, the different people that we've been able to interact with from both IPA and with um, other universities that were connected. And I, I think what they, what they showed us was um, the RCT as a design, as a, as a research method, uh, has, has some distinctives. And one very important distinctive for us was that it started to give us confidence about uh, kind of the mechanisms behind what's happening. And uh, I think we, we do see, and we're in the process of um, trying to publish some of these results, but we do see that there are certain results that are going to be very interesting from an academic perspective. So it's relevant to literature and it fills a gap of knowledge and it checks all those boxes. But at the same time, those findings in itself doesn't necessarily give um, our, our team in Manila or our team in the provinces an idea of, oh, maybe I should, you know, instead of teaching 30 minutes, maybe I should teach 45 minutes. Or instead of teaching um, hand hygiene on the third week of our program, we should teach um, clean water, for example. So it, that, there was this kind of key difference that we started to see. But then when we thought about it a little deeper, we realized that um, what we could start implementing long-term is to borrow a design like an RCT, but match it with specific questions that we have um, within ICM that would help us or give us information about how to run our programs better. And maybe, maybe that's a little convoluted, but the way that, um, I guess the way that we're trying to approach it right now is we always want to match the right design to the right question. So uh, there's one question that we had always been thinking about was, uh, so the way that we run our program is we send um, ICM staff into these communities to teach on health. And then we have another staff member that goes into the communities to teach livelihoods. And so these two teachers, or we call them trainers, uh, will collaborate with the local pastor and the pastor then teaches values. Um, but we did have a question on, on who is, uh, I, I don't want to say best, but maybe who is most effective as a trainer, as a health trainer or a livelihood trainer. What characteristics or attributes would uh, set them up to be really good at their job? And we realized that a question like that, we can actually use an RCT design. And the way to do that then involved randomizing our trainers to communities, uh, collecting all their attributes, um, understand, uh, documenting all of that first. And then with this design, we can start honing in on that question of who is most effective, but we're not doing this um, without a counterfactual or without legitimate comparison groups, but we're actually doing it using um, using the theory behind RCTs. So that's just one example, but we've been doing that with a lot of different key questions that are important to us for implementation, uh, is setting up that counterfactual or setting up that comparison group and uh, doing it in a randomized way so that 
we can get the highest quality evidence. Uh, it does make it a little bit more difficult and a little bit more tricky in implementation, but uh, we found that that added effort, if it leads to much higher quality evidence, then it's it's definitely worth it for us. I love kind of what you're saying there, and and really sounds like perhaps this experimental uh, mindset, uh, so to speak, is maybe really starting to take root, and and maybe the partnership with IPA at Yale helped you and your team and the and the staff to start to say, well, you know, if we can if we can test this, uh, what are the other things we can start to test? Obviously, with the goal of making sure the program is as effective as possible. So, so I love seeing that kind of come to life, I guess, uh, there. Now, um, maybe we can get into a little bit more of the nuts and bolts of, of how do you establish a counterfactual here uh, for you to, to start to run some of these experiments, start to test you know, these, these different parts or approaches. Because I think that's a big challenge uh, for a lot of us is thinking of the costs and the, the logistics and, and even the ethical considerations that go into, you know, having a control group or a counterfactual. So how do you guys, how do you approach that? How do you establish your counterfactuals? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And that, that will always be uh, this really tricky part is the whole concept of a control group. Uh, I think the example that I just just gave right now about our trainers was is a great example for me because it didn't require a control group that gets nothing. Um, maybe there's this impression that if you're going to run an RCT or if you're going to run an experiment, there has to be this group of people that get absolutely nothing. And um, what we're trying to do more and more is we only use that methodology or we only have a control group uh, like that when it's absolutely necessary. But when it's not necessary, then uh, we will try to borrow the, the key elements of the design, which is to find the legitimate counterfactual, and then run the experiment anyways. So, so that, that for us was, was quite key. Um, I think there's two different RCTs that are happening right now uh, at ICM, one of them on a early childhood education intervention. And for, for that study, again, we don't have a counterfactual where the kids get nothing. Um, it's just a, in a way, we're layering our interventions on top of each other, and that gives us the ability to um, have some families that maybe would only get A, intervention A, and then other families would get A plus B plus C, for example, and that gives us the ability to compare across. Uh, the important piece of it is is doing that randomly and letting the computer assign it instead of um, us dictating which, which group gets what, what intervention. Okay, so I mean, you kind of got that at this a little bit, but maybe just unpack a little bit more. Where do the ideas come from of the treatment that you want to test, so to speak, or the the intervention? Are a lot of these ideas coming, I guess, bottom up, or is it perhaps even more top down as some of the executives are looking at strategic decisions that want to be made? How do you kind of generate your, um, I guess, learning agenda or you know, list of RCTs uh, that you want to run? Yeah, that's a great, great question. Uh, I, I would say when I look back at the last couple of years, a lot of the innovations that we do come from both top down or bottom up. And it really depends on which thing it is. Um, 
there's a few distinctives about our program. Uh, so we run this program called Transform, and that's the program where we teach values, health, and livelihood. Uh, but one distinctive is we do the exact same curriculum on the same schedule in every single place that we're working. So we have 10 different offices in the Philippines. Each office has about 50 staff. And so each office has the ability uh, to run 35 transformed communities every single, every four months on this four month cycle. And it happens in perpetuity. That's how we operate. Uh, so it means that I know that we currently have 325 programs running across the whole Philippines. And uh, on Monday, there's the same numbers, the same communities on this list are going to get the program. Uh, so that, that's a key distinctive because of this very strict standardization that we have across. When there's people that are innovating, it's quite apparent. So in one office, maybe one team or two teams decide to do something a little bit different. It, it, because everything else is the same, it's so easy to, to flag it and to see that they're doing something different. So we've had times when uh, our trainers or our field teams, um, one office does something a little bit different and um, we can either see that in the data or we see it, um, we hear about it when we talk to that team and that can get um, then passed on to someone like me and, uh, and as we look at it deeper, if it's something that looks to be a lot more effective, then we would think about what study design to apply to it. Um, if it's something small, then of course we might just look at some of our monitoring data to see if it's doing better. Uh, for example, if they're doing something to increase attendance at one of our um, one of our programs, then and and if it looks very apparent that the trend is different, then we we won't think about running an RCT um, right away. And then we can then pass that innovation or change across the whole organization. So that's one way. Um, but some of the bigger things. Uh, like we've, we've had a big shift in our education programs because <clears throat> the Philippines has been doing great in providing preschool and kindergartens to, to, um, to the people. And previously, we used to run preschools and kindergartens, but we've closed them all down in the last year because um, we see that the government's doing very, very well. And in that space, we then searched out different groups in the Philippines that are doing interesting work in early childhood education. Uh, and interestingly enough, it was a program that also had just finished an RCT. So we took um, their ideas and their programs, worked together to, to find some that would fit with ICM. So I hope that's an example of how we've, we have ideas that come bottom up, and then we also have ideas that um, we will find in the region and then mm -hmm. uh, adopt it. Yeah. Wow. So uh, shutting down an entire program as a result is that's that's pretty fascinating i guess i'm curious have there been other decisions that have been made as a result of running these rcts right so when i think back to the different rcts that we're running the the big big one is on our program as a whole and we still haven't finalized uh, the findings yet but we've had some very interesting conversations internally uh, before the results have even come out or we've had access to the final results. And one of them was whether or not us as an organization um, would be willing to make major changes to our flagship program if the results came back completely negative. And it was a scary conversation, but it also made us realize that if we're going to embark on this path to run an RCT and we do it in a way where 
everyone is in in agreement that you know the the questions that we're asking, um, the mechanisms that we're getting at matches what we think is happening in the program, then are we in a posture that is going to say, wow, so if, if the results come in and say that there's no effect, are we in a posture that's going to say, we accept this and we are going to either shut down this whole program or do something completely different? And it was a difficult conversation, but I think it was important because we had to, we had to be open to that. And I, I would like to say that we, we definitely still are. Um, but but we still haven't gotten those final results yet. But I think our internal conversations so far have been that we really want to respect whatever the data says, and and I think it comes from a place that really believes that if we are doing something for these poor communities, we want to be a hundred percent confident that it is doing good. And if it's not doing good, we want to do something that is impactful and effective and helpful. Um, so that's that's. Maybe that's a precursor to your question of have we made um, any decisions based on RCT results on the RCT on our whole of our whole program? I would say we haven't made major changes yet, but I, we're definitely getting ready to do that as um, as IPA is doing the the final data collection for us um, in the next in the next month or two. Um, but the oh sorry, go ahead. I was going to say I mean I just uh, I guess applaud you and 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 the leadership there because I think what you just described is, is a pretty courageous uh, thing to do. And I think it's a, it's a very healthy thing. Um, but, you know, something I've, I guess, would have, say I've observed or seen or what could be common is, you know, usually when ministries or organizations are started, we, they're started with kind of the end in mind. Like what are, what's the change we're wanting to see? What are we hoping to accomplish? But along the way, we get pretty good at the means of it and, and our programs and models and almost get more attached to that and think more about that. And that becomes such a part of our identity that it's very hard for us sometimes to step back and say, hey, if we figure out we're not actually having the change we thought we are having and the whole reason we started uh, what we're doing, are we willing to dramatically change that? And so uh, I guess I would say I don't see many organizations doing that. So hats off uh, to you guys for being positioned or, or kind of having the posture right now that that's what you'd be willing to do. But anyway, sorry, go ahead. You're going to uh, keep going there. Yeah, no, but no, thank you for that. It, it is, it's definitely scary when we're running some of these studies uh, or it, it's very nerve wracking right before we get, um, we get results. We, we scan once we get um, the readouts from the regressions, we're pouring into them um, with very, very keen interest because we do want to know, we want to have confidence about what we're doing. Um, I was just going to say that with, I think I mentioned that we used to run preschools all around the Philippines. We had um, around 100 schools running and it was a difficult decision to close them down. Um, and we didn't run an RCT on that. There was different things happening in the country as well um, with the government picking up their own program. But also internally, we, we felt like it was time to hand it off to the government. So maybe that story really isn't um, about using a very, very strong counterfactual. Um, but it was it was still um, data driven in the sense that we we always keep track of um, I would say demand and that's how many groups are applying for our programs how many places can we identify that have children that aren't in preschool that have um, kids that need schooling and we we saw this sharp decline 
in uh, places that were looking for preschools to to fill the gap. And so um, maybe that that is a good example of where we didn't need a counterfactual to show that, but we we still used data that we collected uh, to hone in and to see that, well, if, mm-hmm. if no one's applying for it then anymore, then it is something for us to back out of and and let the government take care of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's actually a great segue to another topic I wanted to hit on briefly here as you're talking about making data-driven decisions and looking at evidence and obviously, you know, RCTs and the, and the gold standard and perfect counterfactuals, all of that is very appealing to, to many of us. Um, but that kind of hits on this idea that you mentioned a bit in your presentation. You had a slide about epistemology, and which I thought... Uh, was was really fascinating that that was something you wanted to focus on and talk about in the midst of uh, describing an R- this RCT you've, you've been doing. Um, I guess, first of all, maybe just briefly explain what that is, what epistemology is, but more importantly, why is that an important concept to you and why is that something um, that you think we uh, need to be thinking about overall? <laughs> I'm glad you picked up on it. Um, it's, yeah, it, it, I, I, I tend to start with this too when I, I, so I teach a course on research methods at the University of Toronto, and when I'm there, I also bring students through this, um, just process of thinking through. Um, so epistemology, maybe a loose definition is is where would you believe that truth or evidence comes from. And I always take students through this process of uh, spending a little bit of time sitting on this idea and thinking through um, where do you get confidence in something as evidence. And uh, we, one thing that maybe from a pragmatic side that I've realized over um, just just the short conversations I've had with policymakers to aid agencies to frontline development workers to humanitarian organizations is that it seems like everyone has a perspective on epistemology whether or not it's um, whether they're conscious about it or not or whether they're very clear about it or not um, I think we we all have this bent from where we if we come across a story or we come across a statistic um, we attribute a certain amount of confidence on whatever it is as really representing quote-unquote truth. And if everyone is coming from this almost different, differing um, philosophies of where truth comes from, then as researchers, if our end goal is to study something find find something and try to convince or convey to people that um, that this is what is in fact happening, then we really need to speak the right language to our audience. And um, that's kind of the path of thinking that I, I bring um, students through because um, if you're talking the wrong language at the end of the day, um, then you won't really get anything across to your audience. And I find that um, a lot of us are deep, not deeply entrenched, but we're we're quite. Um, it's quite a personal thing. Um, 
there's some of us that when we see numbers and statistics, uh, something in us says, yes, this is absolutely true. Um, I have confidence in this organization or I have confidence in this news article or article that pops up on my social media because it has statistics. Or there's other people who, would, when they see statistics, their eyes gloss over and uh, what they want is a story that they can really connect to or a narrative that is very strong and they would ascribe confidence to that. And so... Um, for me, that's, that's the whole concept of um, as researchers and as people that are trying to um, document findings and present findings to affect um, either policy or worldviews or ways people think about interventions and everything in between um, is that we want to do it in a way that's convincing. Uh, and I also want to make sure we do it in a way that speaks the right language to the audience. Hmm. Yeah, that's really, that's interesting. And uh appreciate you unpacking that a little bit because I think, you know, all of us, we're trying, we're not just wanting to do research for the sake of research, but at the end of the day, we want to influence policy and, and, and programs and, and really make sure the work we're all doing uh, is effective. And so we have to have that lens. We have to think through that lens in that way. So thank you for that. Uh, let me ask you one last question here. What would be, you know, maybe one or two books that maybe you've read recently or uh, over the course of your career have been highly influential uh, on you what would be one or two books that you would recommend Ooh, okay this is also a great question um uh, one quite interesting book that I, I i think about quite a bit is uh it's called the spirit level uh, it's by richard wilkinson and kate pickett that's right and um it, it's about inequality and it's it's comes from an uh, epidemiological kind of bent and it's two researchers that are looking at equality or um, equity in societies and how does that affect the whole slew of problems and um, I found that this is a great book because it just helped me think through um, um, ideas about how to use data and um, apply it to wider things that are happening in communities and societies um, so that's one one book that I would recommend um, Another book, um, I, I find that it's not, it might not be the most fascinating, but I've been doing a lot more um, reading around um, textbooks lately. And so um, it's, it's not necessarily the easiest read, but there is a, um, a great book on social network analysis done by um, someone named John Scott. And um, that's a new kind of new move in research that we're trying to do at ICM is starting to map out social networks and use those methods to understand how people, how communities look like in terms of their relationships. So that's maybe not necessarily a book. It is a textbook, mm -hmm. but it's, a, it's, something that fasc it's a, something fascinating that we're studying at the moment. Awesome. Very cool. So real quick, where can people if they want to know more about ICM or the, the work and the research you're doing uh, where can they find that online so we have a we have a research section on our website and that's www.caremin.com uh, you'll see a tab for research uh, at the top and we're working on updating that and we'll start putting a lot more working papers and things that we publish onto that site so that's one place to look out for us and then um, the other is maybe my faculty page on the University of Toronto, I am looking to update that too as soon as possible. 
So those are two places you can find me. Well, we'll make sure and put both those links and also the book recommendations in the show notes uh, for everyone to check out. But I just want to say, Lincoln, thanks so much for uh, taking the time. And I think yourself and ICM are really inspiration to many of us in the network and kind of watching you as you blaze new trails. And uh, hopefully we can learn from the work you're doing and uh, be following closely behind you here. Well, it's great. It's a great pleasure to be on this. And thanks for having us. Yeah, have a great day. Cool. Thank you.